Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day. We are discussing Everybody Looking by Candace Elo with author Nick Stone. If you miss Nick's first episode with us, you should 100% go back and listen. Nick is a prolific YA author, best known for her books, Dear Martin and Dear Justice, though she's written many others. And on today's episode, we dive deep into Everybody Looking, a YA novel in verse that was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2020. Be warned, there are spoilers today. Please be sure to listen to the end of today's episode to find out our next two book club picks. That's right. I'm spilling the beans on both our April and May selections. If you're looking for ways to support the Stacks, please consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. Your generosity makes the show possible and you earn inside access to the show while you're at it. For example, you can join our monthly virtual book club chat on the Stacks Book Club Pick. Our chat for everybody looking is on Tuesday, April 6th, and it's open to all Patreon members. So if you're interested in joining the Stacks Pack, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. And I want to say thank you to our newest members, Sydney Turner, Halda Stavang, Alicia Savage, Michelle Wagoner, Anouk Vincenti, Lila H., Michelle Perry, Allison, Javiera Lagunas Alvarez, Ali Ressing, and Jill Amarato. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. Okay, now it's time for my book club conversation with Nick Stone about Everybody Looking by Candice Elo. All right, everybody, I am back again with author Nick Stone for the Stacks Book Club. Today, we're going to talk about Everybody Looking by Candice Elo. And um, Nick, welcome back to the Stacks. Thank you, my dear. I am thrilled to be back. We're thrilled to have you. And um, I should say for everyone who's listening at home, if you have not read Everybody Looking yet, you definitely should read it first because we're going to have spoilers. If you don't care about spoilers, that's fine. I don't know how you live a life that does not care about spoilers, but whatever. (laughs) That's your thing. (laughs) That's not really my thing. So Nick, we always sort of start here. Just in general, what did you think of the book? (sighs) Oh... That's what I thought of the book. Okay. A sigh. Sigh of like wonder. Like this book. So I will say 2020 was rough, man. And like I did, reading got kind of hard, but books in verse were kind of my saving grace last year. And this one specifically 
man, there's so much. Candace is able to do so much in this book that you honestly don't typically see in the young adult genre. And like, I wasn't surprised in the least when it was nominated for a National Book Award because it it's fantastic. It's really good. Okay. I had a very different in, like experience with the book, which okay. is to say, so I read it as we talked about last time, we were supposed to record in November. So I read my physical copy of the book in November and I had thoughts and whatever. And then yesterday I listened to the audiobook in preparation for today's conversation because I couldn't remember very much. And I'm so glad that I did. And so mm-hmm. after I read the book the first time, I sort of was like, okay, like I don't, I don't get it. And then after I listened to it, I still felt like it was, it, it didn't quite like resonate with me, but mm-hmm. I understood the verse better. I understood like the flow and the rhythm a lot better hearing her read because Candace reads the audiobook. So hearing yes. the book read, her voice is great, first of all. Um, so, and, and the one thing that I took away from both readings that I think is probably like a huge deal because I am not traditionally a YA reader at all, yeah. is that this book felt super mature to me. And mm-hmm. it felt super wise. And like, it didn't do a lot of things that I think of when I think of YA. Not that YA does one thing or another. Like, I know that it's super vast. But when I think of YA with my limited um, relationship to the kind of world of young people reading, this book felt really different. Um mm-hmm. And so that was sort of exciting to me. And I liked the book. I just was sort of like, I like this book, but I didn't feel like I, I know people like loved it. And so I want to hear what it is for you more specifically that really like sat with you or like lived with you in your experience of the book. So the interesting thing about everybody looking is frequently when you are picking up a book by a quote unquote black author, Mm -hmm. um, It's about Black American, especially if it's contemporary. It's about some Black American kid getting shot by police or something. Like there's some kind of like traumatic experience that a young person is dealing with and trying to learn how to be Black in America. And like, I'm obviously not disparaging those books because (laughs) I write them, right? Like I'm not going to be like, oh, those books are trash (laughs) because literally that's what that's like my personal bread and butter. But the thing that I loved about Everybody Looking is that you get this glimpse into kind of like diasporic blackness Mm -hmm. but in america Mm -hmm. so you have this you have this character who is first gen first generation american parents immigrated from nigeria and you get this glimpse into a into a different expression of blackness and a different experience of being a person in a brown body in the world Mm -hmm. and so it was you know there's there's a woman named rudine sims bishop who she she talks about books as mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And like, this book was not a mirror book for me in a lot of ways. Like it was with regard to the HBCU experience, mm-hmm. but it was more like a window into a different culture as expressed here in America, but also kind of a sliding glass door because I got to step into this character's life, which though we may be perceived similarly on the outside, we have very different experiences culturally. Mm-hmm. And I think it really highlights the the power of like ethnicity yeah. and, and the fact that like black people are not all the same and right. don't have all the same experiences. Right. I, I think that's interesting too, because I think a lot about 
just the word black and like what, who that describes and what that means. And I mm-hmm. think that like, I feel really empowered using the word black to describe all people who identify and or are identified as black, because I think that mm-hmm. there's a collective experience that we share regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our experience, our country of origin, all of that in America, being black is being part of a community, whether you want to be or not, whether it's even true to your identity or not. Like I know a lot of Latinx folks are identified as black in America, but are not considered black in the country that they came from or that their family came from. And so I do appreciate that this book kind of plays with the difference between being black versus being Mm -hmm. a Nigerian American, right? Like being black versus what it means to be who you are specifically. Right. And like, that is really, really cool. Um, I think one of the things that she does in this book that I, that I think I'm trying to distill my like critique of the book down to being more specific than I didn't quite get it. And I think that the thing that was the miss for me, because a lot of this book actually was a hit for me, but Mm -hmm. what I couldn't quite connect to, I think, is that I'm used to YA books kind of talking about one or two things. And Mm -hmm. this book sort of talked about a lot of things, but Uh sort of just a little bit. You know, like it was like, there's just this like one little scene with a police officer and there's this like one, like one or two scenes with the mom and her addiction. And there's like sort of one or two moments about body image. And like, maybe that's because I went into it thinking like, this is going to be YA. And so I felt like I didn't get, like, I felt like almost nothing happens. But also in my defense, I don't like novels that do this either. I like a novel to like have action. Like I definitely like a plot. I like movement. I like things happening. And so I think that this book kind of lives in this like not quite YA, not quite adult, sort of like literary fiction kind of dead zone. And so I think for people who love books about characters, this is totally your kind of book. I really love books about like something happened and then everyone had to react and show their ass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, this book is a tried and true Bildungsroman, right? So like Bildungsroman is like the literary term for a coming of age novel where Mm. you have, you watch a character go from childhood into adulthood. And that honestly is my favorite thing about it, right? Right. Like I, I just don't get to see many as you mentioned, you don't get to see a lot of YA books that aren't focused on like a very specific time frame. Right. Like even my own YA books, I think the longest time frame that one of my books covers is like a year. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not talking about like when you were five and like how that <laughs> impacted when you were 17. Right. But that's what Candace does in this book. Like we get glimpses of glimpses of Ada in first grade, seventh right. grade, in college. It opens on her high school graduation and seeing the character's arc is the thing that like kind of pulled me forward. Mm. I will say that honestly, what you're saying is one of the reasons that I hate the way the publishing industry is is structured now. Because the thing is, we are so used to this concept of like genre. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking not only genre as in, is it sci-fi fantasy? Is it contemporary? I'm also talking like this age genre thing where everybody for marketing purposes wants a thing to fit into one of these sections. Like, am I marketing this to teenagers? Am I marketing it to adults? Am I marketing, am I marketing it to parents of children? And you're right. This is a book that doesn't fit in one, it doesn't fit in one box. Right. And honestly, that's part of the reason I love it. 
Right. Well, so let me ask you as someone who's kind of been in the publishing world for a while now, who decides these things and how are these decisions made? Like how much power do you have as the author to say, like, I really think this is, this is for young adult and you're, you know, whoever on your publishing team is like, no, it's middle grade. Like how much is there of that? Because when I read this book, one of the notes I took when I finished was this is only a YA book because someone told me this is a YA book. Like I do not feel like this book is a YA. It's, it's as much a YA book as, um, as another Brooklyn is right. Like it's about Mm -hmm. a young person, but like, that's not a YA book. Like, and I don't really know what makes a YA book because when I was a kid, there were just books that I read as a kid and then books that I read after I was done being a kid. But like, like there was, I guess like Lord of the Rings, but we didn't call that YA. We didn't call flowers for Algernon YA or whatever. I don't Mm -hmm. even know what that was. Like we had children's books, like we had Charlotte's web. Like I know that's like a kid's book or whatever, but like, who's deciding who is that all marketing is it coming from editors like who's in charge here the people who want to make the money okay at the end of the day publishing now is is about selling a product and so this idea of categorization has to do with like okay who are we marketing this towards and like as an author i have very little say in how a publishing house decides to sell a book it makes things like everybody looking super tricky because yeah. you're absolutely right. Like this is a book that I would, it's like if there was more cussing in it and maybe a few more sex scenes, it would have wound up in the adult section, right? Sure. But because of the language, the language is very conducive to being understood by young people because of the way that the book is structured and like what what Candace decides to focus on in the book. A lot of it is, what people would consider things that young adults are reading about. Right. And right. it's, I hate it. I hate it, Tracy. Yeah. And I, but I get it at the same time. Right. Because at the end of the day, we like categories in this country. We like to be able to check different boxes. Like, okay, what box does this fit into? What box does this fit into? Because if it fits into that box over there, I'm not interested. But mm-hmm. if it fits into this one over here, I am interested. And you know, this is America. Right. So let's just say you write something and you send it into your editor and it's not something that you're like commissioned to write, right? Like it's like, Mm -hmm. I just, this came to me, I had to write this book and you write it and you send it in. And do you even mention who you think the audience is in that initial sending off of the thing? Or does someone say to you, great, this is a YA book, Nick, you know, do you know what I'm getting at? Or does that make sense? I do. Yeah. No. So at this point, like with like I've written YA and middle grade, I pretty much know. So like I know when I'm writing a book, whether or not the storyline is more conducive to the middle grade space or to the YA space. And I recently actually submitted a couple of new books. Um, Originally they were both, like I submitted what I thought were gonna be two YA books. But once I had written the proposal for one of them, I was like, no, this is a middle grade novel. I don't know how, Mm -hmm. it's just like the more that you read and the more that you create, you just kind of figure out what space it belongs in. And then you have these books that kind of straddle the line. Like I think about, um, obviously the Harry Potter series is, is the example that most people use because you, you follow this character from age 11, which is considered middle grade up through age 17, which is considered YA. And writing, um, when I'm writing these Shuri books, she also exists on this cusp where she's 13, right? Mm. So like, it's considered upper middle grade, lower YA, 
but it's just also dumb. Right. Do you ever have kids? Like, do, do young people ever come to you and say like, I, like, I also read books for adults and like, I hate this. Like, mm-hmm. that's the kind of kid Absolutely. that I was. Like, I would be like, yes. I'm not interested in, like, books for young people. Like, I was reading books for young people when I was, like, five. And then I was reading, like, I don't know, All the President's Men when I was 13. You know? Like, I just yeah. never... So, like, I'm wondering what exists for... I mean, I guess maybe this book, Everybody Looking, exists for kids like me. But, like, what exists for young readers don't want to be treated like young people. Like I want to be treated like a fucking adult. I am 13. I got my period. Like I am an adult, you know, like I definitely had that vibe. I mean, you know what though, Tracy, I will say that I think I only felt that way because these kinds of books didn't exist for us. Maybe I think if they had existed, like the hate you give, I would have eaten when I was 14 or 15, you know, books like, like Elizabeth Acevedo's books. I would just like candy because yes, while they are quote unquote aimed at young people, they're aimed at me. And I think that that makes all the difference. So just like you, when I was, I was in seventh grade, my favorite book was Michael Crichton's sphere. (laughs) Like I was super into these really heavy duty adult sci-fi books. And it was partially because like, I wasn't seeing myself in the books aimed at people my age. And so it was like, okay, well I'll just read something else. Right. When did I do think, start? When did this like That's a good question. I think I think that YA took root as a thing um with Twilight. It's typically twi- mm. Twilight is typically credited as the book that established YA as okay. a genre. Okay. Um and, and that was I was in college yeah. maybe. What what year was that? Do you remember? No, I think we were probably let's see. Twilight was like 2000s. Twilight book the first one came out in 2005 so okay, I, was, I, was in yeah, I was in college okay. I was in college too yeah I'm like I was like a sophomore was in college so I definitely wasn't reading that though I my yeah. college roommate read it afterwards and was like this is sexy <laughs> oh my god I, I tried to read it I, I think I was like 28 or 29 when I tried to read it. And I tried to read it just because I was like, why is everybody so obsessed with this? Like at this point it had been out for like six years and was right. still number one on the series right. list. I'm like, what is this? So I start reading it and I'm like, wow, this is not great. Right. <laughs> I got through the first three. I started reading the fourth one and it just wasn't my cup of tea. Like no shade to Stephanie Meyer, but it wasn't, it, but it wasn't for me is the right. thing that I realized. And I think, I think part of the reason I am so obsessed with everybody looking is because Ada is herself completely right. right. With books like Twilight, you have what I call a shell character. Like mm. Bella is this shell that you can just kind of plop yourself into because she doesn't actually have a personality. Right. So you're able to imagine yourself as being this girl. Like I'm just going to put myself into this character's space because I can ascribe any trait to her. She doesn't mm. have any traits, and I can I can imagine being taken by a hundred year old vampire who sparkles in the sun. Like there was something that I think young girls really latched onto about the ability to insert themselves into this character because it wasn't a character who's fully formed. Meanwhile, I'm that bitch who's like, no, I need to read about a person, like an actual fully formed, fully fleshed out person. And I love reading stories where that fully formed, fully fleshed out person, we see that fleshing happen. Sure. Sure. So you like a good coming of age narrative. 
I do. I okay. really do. Um, another, there's another, so another Brooklyn is definitely one that I absolutely love. And there's a, it's not exactly coming of age, but Celeste Ng's first book. Yes. The title All of which the I can't remember. I- never told you or something. Yes. That one. Like there's something really powerful about that one too. See, Um, I think that we, I think we just have different taste because I read that book and was sort of like, okay, like, I just like, (laughs) like, I like a thing. Like I like a, I like a plot. I just, I love a plot. And so I think that like the things that were hard for me about everybody looking were not, there's everything is right with this book. It's just a me thing, you know, which yeah, is like, it's not for, yeah, no, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's hard to talk about a book. Like it's hard to read a book and be like, Oh, this isn't for me. And like to still read it and be like, I have to talk about this book because there's no, like everything that she has done in this book is really cool and different. And I think that's the thing that kept me going with the book is like, I've not read a book like this before aimed at younger people. It mm-hmm. sort of, do you know what book it sort of reminded me of for adults is very different like plot points or whatever, but a similar vibe and a similar structure was um, Transcendent Kingdom by Ya Jesse. Uh-huh. Okay. I don't know if you read that book, but it sort of like has that forward backwards motion and like complicated yeah. family stuff and memories and like these sort of like moments that drop you into what makes this character but nothing like nothing really happens to move any plot except for that the plot is this person's life and like we're all a story and here we are um and so i think that like for people who love that this book is like an a plus version Mm -hmm. of that like it is totally she's nailed exactly what she set out to do and I just don't connect with that, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I'm just... No, I mean, look, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a person who prefers a plot-driven story. Right. Like, there's right. something really cool about plot-driven stories. They move faster, obviously. Yes. And it's cool when stuff's happening, right? Yeah. Um, that what I, what I will say about everybody looking is that being a person who is obsessed with people, like, I am extroverted in the extreme to the point where being cut off from society for almost a year now because of this pandemic has like, I I can't even tell you how much despair (laughs) that I frequently feel because I can't hug anybody. I can't talk to anybody. I can't go meet and hang out in large crowds. Like those are things that I can't do. And those are also the things that fuel me. But because of that obsession with people and because of that obsession with the human condition, books like everybody looking are like my bread and butter. I'm glad though that you weren't super into it because I think that that it's a good, it's a reminder to people that like all of this shit is subjective, like whether or not a book is quote unquote good or not just depends on who's reading it. You know, this is a national book award finalist book, right? Right. And, and you weren't into it and that's totally fine. So this idea we have, especially, I know a lot of aspiring writers who are like, I want this book to be good. And I'm like, good based on what, you know, like you have to, like people think Twilight's great. Right. It all depends on who's reading. Right. Um, and like things yeah. can be good that are not critically good and things can be mm-hmm. bad that are not critically good or that are critically good. Like there's no, I mean, the idea of good and bad is just so like lazy almost, you know, like, cause it's, it's absolutely, it's just so like, that's why I try really hard to like specify what it is about the books that work or don't work for me, whether I'm doing it on the podcast or on the Instagram or just talking about things because something 
doesn't necessarily have to work for me for me to understand why it is why mm-hmm. other people like it or why you might like it. Like now I know that if I'm recommending a book to you, it's going to be more of a coming of age or more of a book that like explores how people are or why people are the way they are, you know? And like, now yeah. I understand that better. Like people always ask me, Oh, what should I read? And I'm like, well, what are you in the mood for? What do you are like? You? <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you right. like? I don't know. I'm going to tell everyone to read blood in the water by Heather Ann Thompson. And about five people are going to hate it. Because they don't like books about prison and violence. Like, you know, like it's like one of my favorite books isn't going to be your favorite book or whatever. Um, Do you read a lot of novels in verse? I do. I love them. I mean, look, I will say the, during our interview about me, we talked about how like I am, when it comes to books, you got five pages Mm -hmm. to to pull me in. Mm -hmm. Verse novels, that can be tricky. So like, I've read some excellent ones though. And, and I think that I have so much admiration for people who can write in verse because I, I can't (laughs) like, it's not like I am no poet at all. Like I am a prose to the death. Right. But books like everybody looking books like, um, the poet X with the fire on high, no, with the fire on high is prose. Um, Clap When You Land, books like uh, Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. Um, Ebe Zaboy just did a first novel with Dr. Yusuf Salam of mm-hmm. the Exonerated Five. Mm-hmm. I'm like blanking on title right now. Punching really the Air. Punching the Air, right. Punching the Air was fantastic. And then there are also books in verse that aren't great. I love Tommy Alexander's verse novels. Mm-hmm. I loved Booked. I loved The Crossover. Walter Dean Myers wrote really great novels in verse. Are there a lot of books in verse for adults? Is that a thing? For adults, not really. I'm actually reading one right now. Um, it's called, hold on, I'm pulling it up. Hannah, Angel and Hannah. Okay. And it's like a, it's like a, uh, a Romeo and Juliet retelling in verse. It reads super fast. Like what I will say about verse, the thing that I admire most about verse novels is how quickly they read. You get so much bulk and story and like depth in so few words. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Like this Angel and Hannah book, it's like 17,000 words. It's Hmm. super short, Hmm. but it's super rich as well. Yeah. I think this is maybe my second novel in verse ever. I mm-hmm. read Long Way Down and then this, which, well, mm-hmm. I mean, slash I'm, I read Shakespeare, which is different, but that those are, when you read it, those are sort of novels in verse, even though they're plays. Um, but that's a whole other can of worms, I guess. But I, yeah. my question, this is sort of like a, can you teach a teach me moment? You know how on every page <laughs> of this book, like each or each section starts and it's like bold like a title or whatever mm-hmm. are these sections or whatever supposed to stand on their own as like standalone poems is that something in novels and verse or no that's just a formatting thing that they did now what i will say as a person who knows candace uh-huh. and who like got to launch this book with candace um candace is very intentional about each poem being able to stand on its own okay. Candace is a trained poet, like they studied poetry and they studied dance. And so art on the whole is like 
Candace's life. Mm. So these poems are actually supposed to be able to be read individually. Um, But there are absolutely verse novels that like, you can't read them individually because it wouldn't make any sense. Right. I just wasn't sure because they're capped, they're um, bolded. And so that Mm -hmm. was what led me to think, oh, are these standalone or not? Yeah, but they they are. are. Yeah. I don't know that I would know that if I hadn't talked to Candace, you know, it's one of those things where like, authorial intent is such a fascinating thing it's and one I of my favorite things it is because like I, I remember being in high school and like reading these books it's like what does that red cup on the table stand for what is the theme what's the symbolism and then I started writing books and I'm like there's a red cup on the table because that's the shit I saw in my brain like there's nothing significant about it so when I dig through books that have symbolism that have figurative language i know that jason reynolds is very very deliberate about the mm-hmm. the language that he uses and his symbolism i am not <laughs> so when it comes to authorial intent it's like you'll never know unless you just ask the author right do you ever like sit in on a class or whatever and they're talking about your book and they're like describing you all these things that you did and you're sitting there yes. being like yes i definitely picked the like, red cup because i mean of- look i'll take it no one of my favorites <laughs> is i have kid i had a kid ask me so this is about dear martin dear martin's about a it's about a 17 year old boy named justice he's like soaring in academics he's going to Yale etc cetera, etc cetera. and he has this experience um, with racial profiling being racially profiled by a police officer and there's a character in the book named Sarah Jane and they call her SJ and I had a kid be like so we know that justice is definitely a double entendre and I was like okay I see you I see you with the literary terms and then he goes but I was wondering, is SJ the same? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, social justice, Sarah Jane. And I was like, yes, absolutely. (laughs) No, but it is now. We're absolutely going to take that. That makes me feel so much better because when I was a student and our teachers would be like going off on like, the sand means this. And I would be like, I don't believe you. Be like, boy, bye. Like, no, <laughs> the sand, the sand means they're at a beach. Anything. You know, like if they were yeah. not at a beach, there wouldn't be sand. Um, that yeah. makes me so happy. Do you ever feel like people ascribe the wrong intent to you or like blame you for things like the flip side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dear Martin and Dear Justice are books that it's interesting. I don't get a lot of negative Mm -hmm. stuff about those books, but the times that I do get negative stuff, it's exactly what you're talking about. Like I've had with Dear Martin, I've had people be angry about the way that it ends Mm -hmm. and, you know, call me like apologists or something. Like Mm -hmm. there's just like, why would you give this character a redemptive arc? And I'm like, it's a book about Dr. King. Of course, I'm going right. to give the character a redemptive arc <laughs> and it's going to end on a reconciliatory note. I would be completely doing this man's words and his life a disservice right. if it didn't end the way that I think he would want it to end, right? Right. And then I've had, I've actually, I've had a couple of people reach out about, because SJ in Dear Martin is Jewish and in Dear Justice, it's mentioned that she goes on her birthright trip. Mm. And like, I've had, I've had some people email me very angrily about, you know, basically saying that I'm like, how dare you be super pro-Israel? The Palestinian people are suffering. And I'm like, yeah, I know I lived there. Right. Right. So there, so there is this, I think, and this is a tendency that people have when they're very, very passionate about a social issue, Mm. anything that even looks like it's supporting the other side is immediately vilified. Mm. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very interesting. 
Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk more about the book. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One of the things that I really liked about what Candace does in this book is they're so smart. Like there's all these little lines that are like one liners or like observations. Like there's the part where um where Ada is talking about white boy names in the Bible and asking, like, does this mean that the word of God is you know, Anglo-Saxon or whatever? I can't remember the exact uh-huh. phraseology. And then there's also, I don't know if you caught are you a Mrs. Doubtfire fan? Oh, of course. Did you catch the reference where they say, because I'm her goddamn daughter too? I didn't. Oh my gosh. That's all I could think about. I don't know if that's like what Candace <laughs> was doing, but you know, there's the part in Mrs. Doubtfire where the little girl who plays Matilda, um, I, I know her real name and I can't think of oh, it. Oh yeah. Um, it's Mara, Mara Wilson. I went to college yes. with her. Like I actually know her, <laughs> her name. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry, Mara. Um, but we're, we're, 
she like goes to Sally Fields and is like, you can't tell, you can't keep us from him. We're his goddamn kids too. Yes, and so okay. in that line, I literally wrote down, I was like, Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, but there's all these just like smart little like one-liner things that that's mm-hmm. happening throughout this book that I just like, I think so great. Like there's such a respect for their reader. Like Candace clearly cares about who is reading their book and their work. And yes. it's a nod to that. And I just, I, I, that is what I love that maturity, that respect for the reader. Like that's so cool. Yes. And it is like, it is a smart book. It's a book. So as a person who did kind of walk away from traditional evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. this book was like, like there was so much about it that I was like, mm, snapping, mm. right? The, the way that Candace breaks down non-questioning Christianity is, is how I, what I like to call it, where like there's almost this, there's a shame that comes with asking questions. And I think that comes from misinterpretation of Bible verses, right? Or like Bible verses that are then used to limit the way that a person talks and thinks and ask questions about this particular religion. And I say all of this as a, as a person who has studied, um, I've studied the history of Christianity, I've studied church history, and I've studied the Bible in the original languages. So I've studied the Greek and the Hebrew. And there's so much that we pull from the Bible in English that we don't realize is heavily influenced by the time that we live in, mm-hmm. culture, Mm-hmm. cis white patriarchy mm-hmm. like there's so much and i love that candace starts to pick that stuff apart this is another thing that made this a standout book for me because you just don't see a lot of books that kind of go at christianity in, in right. the way that this one does and in a smart way so it's not just like i hate this religion and everybody who believes it is trash it's like okay let's look at the rationality like this is not really logical this contradicts this over here right and you have this character who is questioning these things that she was told she had to believe right and i think that like there's something so powerful to me about witnessing a character's move away from what they were obligated to ascribe to as a kid right and the way that candace examines the power and nature of family mm-hmm. and and how like these authority figures in your life or in your family and the idea of stepping away from that is almost in line with the idea of stepping away from your family. And there's just, there was so much in it that I just, this is a reread book for me, especially yeah. because it's so short and quick. Right. And I think like also what you're getting at about like the complexities of that sort of age, like kind of figuring out like no one's telling you what to do anymore. So then what do you do? And like, what are you able to feel or allowed to feel that you weren't feeling before because you didn't have to, or you didn't get to because of your family Mm -hmm. and your school and your religion and whatever things get in your way. And I think like the questions around Christianity, since that's what we're talking about kind of specifically, they come from a place of curiosity and not a place of judgment, which I think is really hard to do also. Like, I think a lot of authors aren't able to get at that kind of tenderness and love when it comes Mm -hmm. to questioning something. Like, I think a lot of authors have a very strong point of view. And so they put that on their reader versus like 
Adah doesn't have a strong point of view yet. That's kind of the whole point of the book. And I think Candace is able to pull themselves out of it and say, let me let Adah do her thing. Like, let me get out of the way. And I think that's really cool as well. I think, and again, so much about this book is really unique. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, at its core, this is a book about questioning, questioning your sexuality, questioning your upbringing, questioning your family structure, all of these questions. And honestly, for me, this is the attitude I want to move through the world with. I Mm. want to move through the world asking questions instead of assuming that I know the answers because Mm -hmm. there's something so freeing Mm -hmm. about being like, don't know and it's okay that I don't know I will figure it out as I go and sometimes what I figure out will change over time and so I feel like it's a book that's going to give whoever reads it permission to just not have answers you know I say frequently like we live in this country in this society that is hyper insistent on certainty, but like certainty isn't even actually a thing. Like it's impossible to be certain about anything. So being willing to be wrong, being willing to like have your mind change. I think those are superpowers and, and Ada has them in spades. And it's in that way that she is a heroine to me. Yeah. The other thing that she has that I think is so empowering and I wish there was more of in the book in books and in the world is that she has a relationship to her body that is empowering. She has a relationship to physically moving her body in a way that kind of gives her answers or helps her think through things. And like, I I was a dancer my whole life. So I do love the dancing stuff. And I do love the way that Candace is able to um, bring that rhythm into the writing and like to really bring those scenes to life. Also, the dance teacher is totally a dance teacher I've had before who's like, you're not mm-hmm. shit. Like, you need to come to class tomorrow, you know? And like, I just, <laughs> right. that just felt like so real to me. But there aren't a lot of books about young women who have body issues that are also about moving our bodies. So much of the body issues that are discussed are about looking at our bodies and not liking what we see. But in this book, it's like Ada has issues because of family about her size or her weight sort of that comes up. But also we're talking about how powerful and beautiful and malleable and strong and useful a body is, a woman's body is. And I think that's so great. I mean, like more of that, please. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I could not have said it better myself. It's a book that focuses on what the body can do. Yes. Just like you said, it's not about what the body looks like. It's not about whether or not the body fits the mold of what people think is a nice body. It's all about power and it's about movement and it's about flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I, oh, like I have chills just thinking about it because you're absolutely right. And part of the reason there aren't more books like this is because a lot of women haven't come to this. They haven't had this epiphany right. that our bodies are like what my body can do is honestly significantly more important than how it looks. Right. But a lot of women just haven't gotten to that point. And it's honestly, it's a hard point to get to. And it's definitely a hard point to stay with. Right. I have two children. My children are four and eight and I birthed both of my children without drugs. Right. I feel like the baddest bitch there is. <laughs> because of that. Because it's like, not only did I grow a human being literally inside my body, 
push that human being out and then feed it for mm-hmm. a year mm-hmm. solely with my body. Well, I guess like six months I fed it solely with my body. <laughs> like that makes me feel powerful. Right. Also though, I've had a breast reduction and liposuction because it's one of those things where there's this push pull between like, yes, I recognize that my body is strong, but there's such an emphasis on how the body looks mm. that, you know, it's easy to be pulled in the other direction. Right. And like, I'm not ashamed of that in right. any way. Like right. I, I want my body to look a certain way. And I recognize that I want it to look a certain way because of like the way that society says that it should look. Right. But this is a book that reminds me that it's more about what my body can do than how it looks. Well, and the other thing, like, just since we're talking about our the, our worth and our bodies, I think that's worth bringing up is also like our bodies aren't just valuable for what they look like or what they can do. Like that mm-hmm. having a body that fails you in moments or regularly or whatever, that doesn't diminish your value either. You know, like I, I've mm-hmm. heard, I've had, I'm, you know, I think we're both sort of in that age where we have lots of friends who are having kids or have had kids and also lots of friends who have lost babies who have mm-hmm. had miscarriages, who have had stillbirths, all of those things. And and then other friends who aren't able to have children because of health yep. issues and all of that. And I never realized how much of our worth as women or people who have children, have babies, um, how much of that is tied up into being able to have children, you know, like, yes. that, it's, like that our worth isn't just if you're able to have a baby or if you're able to breastfeed, but also that like we're valuable just for existing period. Yes. Like even if we have chronic illness, even if we have disabilities, even if we can birth eight children or no children or whatever that looks like, even if we can dance or we can't dance like that, none of our value should be about the vessel, you know? And like, you can be proud of the vessel and you can feel confident because of it. But like, Women are like men don't have that same stuff. You could be fuckers. Yeah. Like you could be <laughs> disabled. You could be, you know, have missing body parts. You could be overweight. You could be underweight. You could, you know, whatever it is and still be considered valuable and powerful. And with women, it's like, oh, we have this stigma about miscarriages. We have this, it's like, we're mm-hmm. so, we're taught so much fucked up shit about our bodies that like yes. a doll finding joy in dancing is just like, that's that sigh you talked about in the beginning, right? Just that like, yes. ah, this young woman, this she's so going refreshing. through it. Yeah. Yes. Like, ugh, just, I've been having a lot of conversations lately about periods, right? Mm. Cause I love getting my period. Oh, like, I do not I get my it. period. <laughs> See, I love it. I think it's like, it feels like a cleansing, like this Mm. monthly cleansing to me. And it reminds me of what my body has done and can do. And like, I was talking to a friend who was, she's, she's, uh, I think 41. And she was thinking about getting, she hasn't started menopause yet. And she was like, I'm thinking about getting rid of my period. And I'm like, well, why would you do that? And if you think about it, we are so conditioned to hate what our bodies do as women. Mm -hmm. The, even the idea of a period being disgusting that shit didn't come from us. Right. Like women aren't the ones who are like, oh my God, I hate this thing that my body does. Like that's right. something that was heaped onto us that we've right. internalized, right? right? So to see Ada take that power back and be like, yeah, okay, I'm thick. And right. like, I'm about to, I'm still about to get out here and move these hips. I'm right. still about to get out here and do, show you what this body can do. Right. And you're absolutely right. I like to tell, one of my favorite things to tell or to remind young people specifically of is like 
the moment of your conception made a ripple in the universe. Mm. You completely upended your parents' lives. Mm -hmm. You were clearly valuable. Like mm -hmm. the fact that you're here means that you can put stuff out into the world that wouldn't exist without you. Mm. And just remembering that like my presence in a room changes the room. Right. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And yeah. I'm so glad that a doc comes to the point where, where she recognizes that, right? Like she, she recognizes that like, wait a minute, I can do this thing that I was told I can't do. I can do it now. And not only can I do it, I can do it to a point where like other people are moved by it. Like it's yeah. such a, it's such a beautiful and powerful transformation. Yeah. And this book has sort of like a happy ending, if you will, in the sense that just like a is like a little better than where she was, where the book started. And it's not right. like, it's not like she's in love or she's got a job. Like it's not about extra things that are outside of her. It's just about mm -hmm. her feeling a little bit better about her. And like, yeah. that's really cool too. Like the subtlety in this book is really exceptional. You know, like, yeah. I don't feel like Candace is like beating us over the head with like, she's so good at body rolls and pivot turns. Like she's worthy. You know, it's like much more just like, there's a joy in this and this helps, this helps Ada and she's going to figure out the rest. And like, yeah, her dad's probably going to be annoyed, but like, she's confident in this person she's that cool she's becoming. It, right? Yeah. Like, cool. and like, you be annoyed. And like at 18, that is revolutionary for most of mm -hmm. us, I think. I think, you know, there's some probably 18-year-olds who figure it out and, like, do it. But, like, I don't know. At 18, I was very much not there. <laughs> nah, 18, I was, like, drunk half the time. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, that was not a great age. I mean, it was in the sense that, like, you know, you've graduated from high school. You're trying to figure things out. And I do think that there is beauty in the unknowing, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're young, you have all of this crazy shit happening around you. There are all of these, these decisions that have to be made. But in that space where you are wickedly uncomfortable, you have no idea which direction to go. You're actually noticing that there are multiple directions. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that I don't think we value enough. Like we don't value that we actually have options. We don't value, we take it for granted right. here right. in America, as I like to point out, like people don't have choices in other places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Okay. We have to talk about two things and then we have to go because we're out of time and I want to be respectful okay. of you. But the first thing that we always talk about on the show is the title and the cover. So I would just love if you had any thoughts about the title and the cover. Listen, this so so I am a huge title and cover person. The title is fascinating, mm -hmm. right? Because everybody is broken up into two words. So it's it's a double entendre, like everybody looking, but also everybody looking because it's a book about a body, right? right? So I don't even know if that was on purpose, but... It must That's have been. my interpretation. You just I'm never going know. with your interpretation as well. Authorial intent, who even knows? But like, <laughs> I really do love that after reading the book, the title just made more sense to me because yes. I was like, why is it two words? And after reading it, it made more sense. And then to see this beautiful dark skinned black girl on this cover with all of this color around her, mm -hmm. bruh, you just don't get like, I would have never seen this when I was a kid. Right. This was not something that never. existed. Never. And it just wasn't a thing that existed. And I, I remember looking, the first time I saw it, I was like, whoa, because it's very striking. And this is a book that I would have absolutely picked up just because of the cover. Like zero doubt. This yeah. would have gone, and I would have bought it literally because of the cover. Yeah. Because it's, it's a fantastic cover. I'm with you. I think the cover is beautiful. I love that she has 
I just I love every, I love kind of that she's like yeah covered up guarded a little bit hands. yeah it's yes. like a little covered up but also like yes I'm striking my pose I am available for movement like I just love it oh, the hey. colors everything I, I agree the co- this title makes more sense after having finished the book than it like I was sort of like what is this but then I was like oh I get it um Okay, the last thing, because I teased this last time and I literally did not ask you a single question, which was was one of the big things I wanted to talk about. So we'll do a quickie. Can you just <laughs> tell us a little bit about Blackout and the community of women of with which you've made this book? Yeah, so 2020 was shit, mm-hmm. basically. And Danielle Clayton, who is, she's a young adult author. She's about to step into the middle grade space. And she's the COO of We Need Diverse Books. And she also runs a packaging company. She runs a packaging company behind um, the Tristan Strong series. So she has a niece and her niece was just annoyed by the movie. There was like an adaptation of a film called Let It Snow. And it's like this John Green, Lauren, these three white, you know, white YA authors came together and wrote this this interconnected novel, this novel of interconnected stories. It's, it's a novel, but you have people writing different parts. Right. Her niece was bothered by how white it was. <laughs> and I, I don't disagree with her. You know, like there's kids are so much more conscious of themselves these days than mm-hmm. we were. Cause mm-hmm. like, I remember I wouldn't have ever said that aloud because like we were supposed to be colorblind, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to notice that there were no black people on the TV show. So Danielle, she comes to, Let's see. There are five. There are six of us total. So it's me, Nicola Yoon. Um, that's everything. Everything in the sun is also a star. Tiffany D. Jackson, who wrote allegedly Monday's Not Coming, and three others. Ashley Woodfolk wrote When You Were Everything. Me and these titles today. But she wrote. <laughs> she's written six books now, I think. And then Angie Thomas and me. I don't need to tell you who Angie Thomas is. Um, <laughs> And hopefully I don't have to tell you who I am because I've been talking for like an hour. So she, we decided that we were each going to write. So Danielle comes up with this idea. She's like, let's each write a story, a love story about two black kids. They can be diasporic, whatever, but they're black kids. It's New York and there's a blackout. What's going to happen? And so we did. So there's a, there's a pair of, there's a couple taking a walk from Harlem down to Brooklyn. There's a couple um, stuck on the subway. There's a couple stuck in a library. There's a couple stuck in an, in a tour bus. There's a couple in a senior living facility. And then the final couple is they're in a cab. And so you have these different mm-hmm. couples, but it's all one novel and they're all trying to get to the same place. And it was so refreshing to write these stories last year when everything was hell. Like getting to write a love story that didn't deal with racism, Hmm. that had nothing to do with anything related to the racial reckoning going on. Man, was that delightful. So it drops June 22nd and there's a lot of, there's a lot more like interesting and exciting things coming that have to do with that. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Nick, thank you so, 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 so much for being here and talking books with me. This was just such a treat and I'm so glad it finally happened. Same. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so, so much to Nick for being my guest and to Kathy Dunn for making this interview possible. 
Okay, drumroll please. The Stacks Book Club pick for April, National Poetry Month, is Jericho Brown's Pulitzer Prize winning poetry collection, The Tradition. And in May, we're reading Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. But because the book is so long, I'm giving you a head start, so I'm telling you today. To find out who our guests will be in both April and May, stay tuned each week right here on The Stacks. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.